Hello, everybody. I'm Matt Mulford, and this is Trium Connects, a new podcast for the Trium community. We've been cutting out the wrong efficiencies. Waste is an inefficiency we can cut out. Building stable, sustainable, resilient supply chains is not an efficiency we can cut out. If you shop solely based on price, you force producers at a certain price point into doing things that are unsustainable. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Trium Connects. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to just send a special thanks to all of the listeners who have uh, contacted us and given us some fantastic feedback. We really are happy that you're enjoying the series and long may it last. And also a special thanks for all of you who have uh, reshared or sent uh, the podcast link to others in the Trium community, as well as uh, outside of the Trium community. For those of you in the latter category, uh, let me just try to explain a little bit about what Trium is before we get on to the introduction to this episode's guest. The Trium Executive MBA is a joint venture between three world-class institutions, HEC in Paris, the London School of Economics, obviously in London, and New York University Stern School of Business. And since we started, the degree has been ranked as one of the top five EMBA programs in the world. And the program is really global in its ambition and its scope. Uh, It has residential modules located in London, San Francisco, Paris, New York, and Shanghai. And at the heart of the DNA of Trium, I would say, and, and what makes it really special, is a few core beliefs that are shared by all the three partner schools, as well as our students past and present. And those core beliefs are really reflected, I think, in the guests that we have on the podcast. And so if the content that you've been listening to is interesting, it's not chosen by accident. So a couple of those core beliefs. First of all, we really believe in order to be a business leader in today's world that you need to have a deep understanding of the political and social environment in which business operates. You know, geopolitics and political economy are are really must-have areas of knowledge for today's business leaders. We fundamentally believe that, and it's reflected in everything we do. Next, we think to have a better understanding of the present and future, business leaders must really have an understanding of the kind of ecosystem of innovation in the world, and, and what are the dynamics of entrepreneurialism within that ecosystem. So in addition to all the other core classes that you would find in other MBA programs. You need to understand the geopolitical context. You need to understand the ecosystem of innovation and entrepreneurship. And finally, you really have to have a key understanding of the absolutely essential role of diversity and value creation. If you want to go to a place that will create an echo chamber for yourself, Trium is not the place to go. This is reflected in the profile of our cohorts. A typical class will have about 60 students, And those 60 students will represent around 30 nationalities. They'll have an average age of around 40 and 15 plus years of experience. So this is really a truly global degree with senior people from around the globe who are all drawn to the program with the characteristics we just described. So this self-selection creates an amazing cohort effect. In addition, the diversity of views and approaches that are reflected in the academic content across the three different institutions add to the diversity of ideas in the program. Look, if this sounds like something you might be interested in being part of, check us out at uh, triumemba.org, and uh, we hope to hear from you. 
But for now, let me turn to an introduction to our guest for today's podcast. In this episode, I have a great conversation with Tonzi Whalen. Tonzi is one of those people that the, from the first time you meet them, you recognize that however the conversation is going to go, that you're just going to learn a lot and that it's going to be a really nice experience. Tansi is currently a clinical professor of business and society at NYU's Student School of Business, where she is also the director of the Center of Sustainable Business. Before joining the school, Tansi was the president of the Rainforest Alliance, where she recruited more than 5,000 companies in more than 60 countries to work on sustainability. She transformed the Rainforest Alliance frog, you may see it on some items that you purchase, into an internationally recognized and credible brand of its own. Before the Rainforest Alliance, she was the executive director of the New York League of Conservation Voters, and before that, the vice president of the National Audubon Society, and before that, a managing editor of Ambia, which is the journal of the Swedish Academy of Sciences. In addition, she's on the board and or advisor to many firms and organizations, including the Future Economy Project for Harvard Business Review. All of these activities have led her to be recognized as one of the 100 most influential people in business ethics. In today's episode, Tansi and I talk about the alignment between business performance and what she calls embedded sustainability. And that leads us to a talk about the importance of the monetization of sustainable activity and an introduction to a monetization methodology that will help firms or that should help firms create real quantitative numbers about the impact of their innovation activities. We also discussed the appropriate role of the state in the creation and maintenance of free markets and the promises and perils of leveraging consumer demand to trigger or to push companies to behave in more sustainable ways. So without any further ado, here is my conversation with Tansi Whalen. Tansi Whalen, welcome to Triumph Connects. It's great to have you. Great to be here. The first question I'm going to ask you, I have a, a confession to make because I have a kind of personal interest. I know that you started a long time ago as a journalist in Costa Rica, and I actually lived there as well in 1985, and I think you were there shortly afterwards. But maybe you can tell me a little bit, because for me, when I was doing a little background on you to prepare for the podcast, I found your kind of personal journey a really fascinating one, you know, starting in Latin America as a kind of journalist, and then this leads to post at lots of different environmental uh, groups, and then you end up heading the Rainforest Alliance, and then you move to the Center for Sustainable Business at NYU Stern, a business school, world-renowned business school. So it seems like a really interesting journey, and maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, well, so actually prior to Costa Rica, I would, I, um, let's see, uh, worked in DC where I worked for a wildlife fund on international um, environmental issues and, and worked for them in the Caribbean. And then I went to Sweden where I um, was the associate editor of Ambio, which the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences puts out. Um, and then from there, I went to Costa Rica. And I'll just point out one really interesting um, pivotal event there, and I'll share one in Costa Rica that really shaped how I think about things. So 
um, for Ambio, we had Chernobyl happen when I was in Sweden. So uh, we had nuclear radiation. It was a beautiful May day. Some friends of mine were getting married. You had no idea. And then I happened to be scheduled to go to the Netherlands to cover um, a conference on something like the transboundary transportation of nasty stuff, basically. And there were (laughs) delegations there, Soviets, the Soviets were there, Americans, everybody else. And we weren't talking about Chernobyl. So I went up to the U.S. delegation and I said, why aren't we talking about Chernobyl? And he he was just like the, and I actually had been up in a little plane over the Netherlands. They had lots of radiation. So I've been up there testing it. And so he said, well, we, we can't talk about it because the Soviets will walk out. So that to me sort of said, hey, government is really, um, challenged in addressing these issues and sort of, sort of affected my thinking about role of the um, civil society and private sector. And then I went to Costa Rica where I worked as a journalist as well and, you know, covering sustainable development issues. And at the time we were having um, you know, war in Nicaragua, a lot of strife, but at the same time, people all over uh, Central America, we're setting up ministries of environment, we're setting up protected areas, Costa Rica was a leader in this. Um, and so I, I was motivated and excited by that. Uh, but what I also saw at the time was American and European environmentalists coming in and with their um, kind of first world attitude of, well, McDonald's is cutting down forests, so that's a bad thing, which it was, um, and so we need to stop it. So they launched boycotts, and then from one minute to the next, entire sort of economy dropped out from under poor people in Costa Rica. And so the end result was not that deforestation was stopped. In fact, those people had to turn to slash and burn agriculture in order to put food on the table. Um, So that kind of uh, unilateral, without sort of understanding the impacts of your action, was something that really had an impact on me and, and got me thinking about you know, how do you bring together civil society, government, and the private sector to really shift um, how business does its business? And then uh, moving back to the United States, um, did a couple of jobs, but then ended up running the Rainforest Alliance, where the whole mission of the Rainforest Alliance is really about how do you um, help change business practice, land use practices, business practices, and consumer behavior so that you can serve uh, and protect livelihoods as well as biodiversity. So that theme that you picked up in Costa Rica, as you just said, it kind of go- has gone throughout your professional life, this intersection, what you called civil society and business and, and the state, trying to regulate, manage the this relationship between the people who live on the land and uh, the preservation of, of things that we think are important that are there. And it's interesting that, uh, again, uh, I think in 89, you published this book on um, ecotourism or, 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 and doing some, some kind of consulting work on governments on how to set up this ecotourism. And again, from the very beginning, you had in mind this kind of intersection. How do we, how do we preserve things we want to preserve while providing a, a way of life for the people who live in those spaces. So I, I think it's a very interesting theme that I kind of want to talk about the rest of the time we have together. So one of the things that I know that you've consistently argued and empirically shown at the center at NYU is this alignment between business performance and and what you guys call embedded sustainability. And for me, I, I have a pretty good idea about what sustainability is, but maybe you could tell me that it seems to me a real key word that embedded it's doing a lot of work and i want you 
to maybe explain a little bit if you can tell us a bit about what you mean when you say embedded sustainability rather than just you know like a normal csr approach yeah absolutely so first let me just define sustainability although i know you know what it means but i think it's always helpful um, so for sustainability, we mean uh, not only environment, but also social and even governance issues like corp uh, like uh, corruption or ethics. Um, so so uh, that's something that's really important as we think about sustainability. So what is embedded sustainability? For a corporate, it's when you're really ensuring that your environmental, social, and governance strategies are part of your business strategy, not a corporate social responsibility initiative off to the side where you're doing some nice investments in the community or some employee volunteerism or even sort of a nice initiative around, you know, water conservation or something, but that's not aligned with how your business does your business. So really it should be part and parcel of your strategy um, and drive your objectives, your incentives, your bottom line performance. And I know that one of the things that you do at the center is this idea of uh, of a monetization methodology because you, you guys say that you know it's all fine it, it's part of this theme you in too many firms you know you have the CSR function as you set off on the side it's not part of the overall strategic kind of orientation or DNA of the of the firm and you say one of the reasons for this is that there's a lack of kind of communication or speaking the same language between the CFO and the finance people and then the sustainability mm -hmm. people. And I know one of the things you you found, and this is a quote from, from one of your studies, we have found that sustainability drives innovation, operational efficiency, risk mitigation, employment retention, and productivity, amongst other factors, all of which can be monetized. And again, it's that last part that I think is really interesting. Um, you, you've developed a monetization methodology in the context of this embedded sustainability. So mm -hmm. can you, I, I mean, how do you attach, how do, how do you create those kind of causal links uh, between the practices yeah. of embedded sustainability and the deltas in across all these things and then you monetize? It seems a, it seems a big task, super important, but, but difficult. Can, yeah. you, can, you, can you tell us how you do it? Absolutely. Well, so I think it helps if you think about embedded sustainability as just good management, right? And good management drives operational, finish, operational efficiency, risk mitigation, employee engagement, supplier loyalty, customer purchasing, et cetera, right? And what we're seeing as a sustainability is that new wave of good management. And that's why it's so important that it's embedded as opposed to something off to the side. So what we've done is designed something we call ROSI, Return on Sustainability Investment. And the ROSI methodology um, uses nine mediating factors, such as innovation and risk mitigation and operational efficiency, um, to look at your sustainability strategies and your practices and decompose them to basically understand um, how you might quantify and monetize them. So, for example, um, we've done um, study working with automotive companies, GM, VW, and Aston Martin, and identified 18 sustainability strategies, one of which is waste reduction. So what companies are beginning to do from a sustainability perspective is to recycle their paint and solvents. When they recycle their paint and solvents, they no longer buy the virgin stuff, they no longer pay the waste disposal costs of the toxic waste, 
and they actually have extra that they sell. So they've uh, avoided costs, reduced costs, and they also have a small revenue stream. So we found for one company, their waste reduction strategies resulted in, um, uh, it was about $285 million annual EBIT, which is now a small chunk of change. But we also found that the company actually hadn't tracked those returns on investment back to their waste reduction strategy. In another case, in talking with a um, pulp and paper company, um, they don't pay for their water. So they thought, well, it doesn't really matter how much water we use. Um, and this is another you know, very basic operational efficiency story. But um, the sustainability lead started to look at this and he found that due to the vast amounts of water they were bringing into their factories, they used an enormous amount of energy to move the water around, to heat it and to cool it. And then they had massive wastewater costs, uh, disposal costs. So they were, the, all that excess water use was actually costing them $1.5 million a year <laughs> per factory. Right. Then we looked at, you know, uh, like, so we just finished a project with um, a company, uh, an apparel company. And we, who is very well known for their um, purpose and that people come there to work with them because they've got such a strong purpose. And we were able to monetize the, their retention and productivity numbers and found that um, because of their um, purpose, they were generating about $34 million a year in both reduced turnover costs and in higher productivity, which is about 5% of their labor costs. So a really significant amount. So we continue to see this. We've worked with McDonald's and Carrefour and deforestation. We've worked with Merck and Pfizer and Pharma. We've worked with, we're working right now with Cargill and McCormick in food uh, with Mars. And, and over and over again, we see this correlation between or causality really um, of, you know, better sustainability practices lead to better management, lead to better financial performance. And one other example, if you'll bear with me, yeah, yeah. Um, we worked with a utility uh, in Canada who was deciding whether or not to get out of coal early because in Canada, they're requiring that companies exit coal, utilities exit coal by uh, 2030. And so we looked with them at um, both employee retention and engagement because employees more and more don't want to work with these sort of dirty coal companies. Yeah, yeah. And secondly, cost of capital, because increasingly investors are, you know, jacking up cost of capital for companies that have coal um, because they see them as higher risk. So in looking at those two things together, we identified really significant but financial benefit for them. So they actually decided to exit coal earlier. So those are all amazing and inspiring examples. And, and it seems, as you said, it's kind of part, it sounds like it's a bit like part of just good efficiency management, right? Uh, because some of the times I've seen other kind of models where they try to monetize the value and, and relate it back to some financials in the company. And, and sometimes they do a little bit of funny stuff where they say, okay, well, we're going to measure the positive externalities that are not polluting is going to create. So they say, you know, okay, well, if we don't do this, then these bad things won't happen. And therefore we're going to put a price on those bad things. And we're going to kind of count those as revenue or not revenue, but kind of payoffs on our sustainable uh, actions. But it sounds like to, to me that your monetization methodology at the center doesn't use those kind of methods. They, they, they just track right back to the efficiency improvements in the firm. Is that right? Efficiency and sales, uh, risk mitigation, all those things within the firm. So yes, there are. And I actually think at some point, 
companies will begin to be charged for those externalities, but um, there are other organizations working on that and, and nobody is really working on those. How do we actually better improve our decision-making around our internal return on investment rather than externalities? Um, so yes, that is where we're focused. I think, you know, another area that's really interesting is how do you monetize um, avoided risk, right? Because a lot of times companies will say, well, we can't afford, we can't meet our internal hurdle rate. Uh, so I'll give you another example, like um, uh, if you're going to invest in water conservation technologies and in, in, in factories where you have a um, low, you know, high water risk, and we know that factories in Sao Paulo were actually shut down, for example, for four days when there was a drought there. And the likelihood of that is going to continue to increase as we have water crises around the world. You can actually look at that and say, well, for an average company, factory, they're shut down for four days. It costs $200,000 a day for them to be shut down, both in terms of employee and lost business. Um, so that's $800,000. We can assign a probability and we can actually make that number more conservative. We can say, you know, maybe it's just two days. But then we can actually monetize and give uh, an avoided risk of investing in water conservation technology that otherwise the company might decide they couldn't afford, but then two years later have a major event that had they invested in it, they would have continued to operate. Sure. And those are just notoriously tricky things to measure, you know, because I mean, I guess mm -hmm, they are writ large, we're experiencing it right now because um, there's a lot of countries across the world COVID, yeah. who reduced their stockpiles of medication after, you know, and, and different uh, mm -hmm. uh, pandemic kind of prep preparedness because it's costly to keep all these things in big warehouses and keep them uh, ready to go. Mm -hmm. And there, you only hit the cost if it happens. So it's one of these things that if you prepare well, uh, it's it's kind of a, a an issue that came up in our our first uh, podcast with Olivier Olivier Seboni, who's a, a decision uh, making expert. But he said that one of the one of the problems is if you put in mitigating uh, something that that avoids risks and the risk is avoided, all you have on your ledger is a cost and no benefits. Um, and it's only you only yeah, see no, the it's it's definitely an yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, you only see the, right, you only see the benefit. So this is a challenge, but I think for what we all need to recognize as humanity mm. is that these types of issues are going to happen more and more often, and therefore managing for those risks become imperative. The companies that have been investing in their supply chains from a sustainability perspective have actually more built-in resiliency and actually have more transparency into their supply chain. So when COVID hit, Many of them were actually, they still were hit, but they were better able to manage for those issues because they already understood where, what was happening in their supply chains and who their partners were and where they might need to go, where there would be potential challenges. Um, you know, if you look at COVID as um, like, in effect, it's a warm up for what's going to be happening in 10 years around climate change because COVID is a an exponential growth problem, and so is climate change, right? And it's systemic as well. So you also have that challenge of one problem leads to another problem. And climate change, you've got all kinds of knock-on impacts, transportation being affected, water quality being affected, you know, pollination being affected, human ability to work in high temperatures being affected. So all of these things, you need to actually build in those, that resiliency, those redundancies, et cetera, so that old mantra of uh, 
cutting out all efficiencies, we've been cutting out the wrong efficiencies. There are, you know, waste is an inefficiency we can cut out. You know, building stable, sustainable, resilient supply chains is not an efficiency we can cut out, right? Well, and I sincerely hope that you're right. In, in my more optimistic moments, I'm, I'm thinking that we're all learning lessons that uh, will prep us for our real test to come. But in mm -hmm. my pessimistic times, I look at the world's response to this particular crisis and yes. I think, oh, oh my goodness, if this is what we do with this, what are we going to do yeah. with something yeah. truly horrible? And of yes. course, with the climate crisis, we don't have the equivalent of China and Italy. Um, you know, mm -hmm. other people, have, I've, I've said this in, in other podcasts as well, we could see them and we could say, we don't want to be them. Um, but with climate crisis, of course, once we see what we don't want to be, it's already too late to stop it from happening. Mm -hmm. So the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a prolonged time thing that's, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because uh, when I was looking at uh, at the methodology a little bit, it, I, I, I'm interested to see how, for example, you were talking about at the, I think, it, did you say the apparel company that mm -hmm. has a very high purpose mm -hmm. and that you were looking at, you know, the savings based on um, lower turnaround, uh, et cetera. Lower turnover and yeah. higher productivity. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing that you used other apparel companies similar to look at the delta between them, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so th this this creates a, a relatively strong causal link. Um, right. Because one of the things that's difficult sometimes is, as you said, sustainability or embedded sustainability is so close to kind of good management that sometimes you don't know whether it's just a good manager or whether it's the kind of sustainability part. But it seems to me that your methodology, I teach methodology and triumph. So this is why uh, it seems to me that it, it is, it's, it's really sound and it's an amazing amount, uh, a bit of work that you guys are doing. If firms are interested in trying to get help in monetization of, of their uh, sustainability efforts, does the center offer that service as a consultancy or do they, is, how does that work? If, if somebody from, from the Triumph community is listening to this and say, wow, that sounds really great. I don't know how to do it. What would they do? Yeah, we actually do work with companies in a consultancy basis. We're working with Cargo right now, McCormick um, and others in, in that way. Um, we're, because we're an academic institution, we have a couple of, differences in how we work as a consultant. So one is that we need to be able to publish out of the work that we do with the company. Um, and we are happy to work around confidential information and so on, but we do want to, and generally companies want to as well, um, be able to share what we've learned uh, in an anonymized way. In addition, all of the IP that we develop with the company remains ours. So we we do, what we're doing with companies is we work with them um, to say, let's say you're a um, an oil and gas company, and you want to figure out how you want to how you could apply Rosie to developing a different path, or uh, you know, making other um, choices around your your work. Um, we come in and we sort of analyze with you what some of the key opportunities were, and then we'd identify um, interviewing you and external stakeholders that you told us to. Um, kind of where the positive benefits would be. And then we figure out how you might put together equations that could monetize that and then assign probabilities or assumptions that you could use for it. Uh, and then that sort of strategy that we use and tools that we develop would be yours to use, but also ones that we would then share open source with, with right. other oil and gas companies, for example. Okay. 
but we'd be delighted. I hope that some Trium, uh, uh, you know, students or alums want want to become involved. No, I, I, definitely. And um, what's uh, fun is since we started this podcast only a couple episodes ago, um, it's kind of we've had some organic uh, growth into uh, people who are tangentially re uh, connected to Trium. So who knows who, who might give you a call one of these days. Um, we've been so far talking kind of about, you know, the benefits on the internal side of the company, you know, the efficiency and the retention of staff and the, and the motivation, et cetera. Um, part of your work and, and part of your work now, and, and certainly with Rainforce Alliance was more on the, it seemed to me more on the kind of B to C side and the idea of, you know, how do we tie consumer demand, uh, to sustainable products and, uh, how big of a piece of the solution, and now we're talking kind of, well, maybe environmental sustainability, but sustainability writ large, how big of a piece do you, that, do you think is tied to this consumer demand dimension? Consumer demand is really important. And I, I, so I got very interested in this topic, running the Rainforest Lens, because I kept hearing from companies, oh, well, people say they want to buy it, but then you know there's a green gap between how many people actually buy it, or they say whether they want to buy it, but they don't want to pay a, premium, you know, pay a premium for it. So when I got to Stern, I said, well, let's go, let's look at this as an academic question. So we did research, and what we found out in the academic literature is that no one had looked at actual purchasing of sustainable products in any kind of significant way for 15 years. So all those statements <laughs> were based just on surveys, not on comprehensive data. So we partnered and we now have a five-year partnership with IRI, which is a company that collects all of our barcode data in the United States at retail. Every single from mom and pop to, you know, Walmart. Wow, huge um, data, huge data. Huge data, big data on um, uh, consumer packaged goods. So that's personal care and food products. Um, and we looked for fi over five years from 2014 to 2019, um, the trend in purchasing of sustainable products. Uh, sustainably marketed products. And what we found looking at 36 of 40 CPG categories across 73,000 products was that 54% of the growth in consumer packaged goods came from sustainability marketed products. And you looked across those 30, 36 categories, 90% of them, the sustainability marketed products were outperforming the conventional products. Wow. And we also saw that P the premium being charged was at the beginning 2014 was 35% uh, and then it went up to 39%. And I can tell you as someone who's worked very closely with these companies that it is not costing them 35 or 39% yeah. <laughs> well, to pay for the sustainability part. Absolutely not. I mean, let me, <laughs> let me put in a little bit of a pessimistic story. I, I remember sitting... Uh, in a in a class, uh, um, I used to be the dean of the Triumph program. So I one of the great pleasures was I got to sit in the back and listen to all these smart people up at the front of the room, see all kinds of things. And I remember uh, having somebody that was a pricing expert, and he said, "You know what we really like? What would be fantastic is if we could charge people based on their ability to pay." So if somebody walked into the store and they're rich, we could charge them a lot for stuff. And if somebody walked into the store and they were poor, we could charge them a little and we could capture all of the market, right? Just by differentiating the price. And he said, and we figured out a way to do it. It's called sustainability. He said, well, all we need to do is if we put nice middle-class valued sustainability products and we put a nice certification label on it, 
we can jack up the price. So a nice organic forest safe coffee, for example, we can sell it twice the price. Well, it cost us maybe 10 P, you know, maybe 10 cents, 15 cents more per kilo to, to actually get the product. And this is a way that we can uh, essentially capture more money from our consumers based on their non-monetary preferences across the products. And it was, oh. and, yeah, go ahead. What he forgot is that then that product should also be offered to people who can't afford a 40% premium at no premium in order to compensate that. So everybody out in rural America who doesn't have that kind of income as somebody on Fifth Avenue in New York City, right? That part didn't get translated. No, it, did, it didn't. No, so what they said is we'll have a product that just says tasty coffee. And that will be for the people who that will be for the people who don't have the big incomes. Oh, so then, they don't get to have sustainable. <laughs> no, and then we'll have our sustainable brand. Uh huh. Yeah. And we'll say, and we, we might even call it a different brand. We might, uh, we, it'll be in different packaging. It'll be different. It. We are claiming that Tasty Coffee is sustainable. We aren't claiming any environmental things, and it comes from, you know, where we can get the coffee the cheapest, and our sustainable stuff. We paid minimal more for it, but we get to charge a lot more because we're tapping into these mm -hmm. kind of secondary preferences of people who have high willingness to pay mm -hmm. to make themselves feel better. And and what we need, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, what I was gonna say, so the interesting, so additional, we did the demographic, we were, we were able to get household survey data and so on. So we did additional demographic um, analysis. And so we looked at income level, education level, and what they call county ABCD, which is basically urban and rural. Um, and, and also, of course, generational. And so what we found is that, yes, upper income, higher education, millennial, and urban over-index, okay? But that middle income, middle education, um, uh, baby boomers and Generation X index. So in other words... For example, yogurt, 70% of yogurt has some type of sustainability attribute on it, 70%. Um, so people in that middle area are actually purchasing um, yogurt. 70% of them are purchasing a sustainability marketed yogurt. Then we looked at the low-income rural. And for the two or three products, I think dairy, tissue, like toilet paper, tissue, and yogurt, where there were actually high percentages available uh, nationally, they were indexing too, to that same, um, you know, 70% or whatever, 60% for toilet paper. I don't okay. remember the exact numbers, which led, this is just a hypothesis. We don't have the data on this. It's something we're really interested in, but which led me to believe that, and we don't have the premium information on those either, but led me to believe that if you were to offer sustainably marketed products at maybe a slight premium, but not a 40% not a premium, but a slight premium, you could actually get people lower income um, in rural areas, lower educated, et cetera, would actually want to buy sustainable products. I think it's more that they, A, don't have access to them because a lot of these stores in the rural areas and other places, they just don't have access to them. And B, the premiums are just set too high. So I, I think I think there's really interesting opportunity, particularly sort of coming out of COVID. And then one last thing is we did look at what happened to sustainability and CPG at, at, you know, through the IRA data during COVID. 
um, during the sort of the peak when everybody went nuts, myself included, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and bought all the toilet paper and, and Campbell's soup and whatever. So, yeah. um, and then uh, we saw a huge peak, obviously, in, in CPG conventional, but the peak in sustainable was just as high for their share. So sustainable started the year in total market share of 16 point something. I've forgotten what exactly, around 16. And I think it ended, um, it's now around 16.8. So it's actually gone up. Um, it sort of ended up higher uh, after COVID than prior COVID. We still haven't gotten over the 20% mark, right, um, in terms of sort of moving from niche. But I think with that huge growth rate of 50% plus, we're going to get there. Yeah, I mean, I hope you're right. I, I, I worry some about the post-COVID world, just because I think we're on the cusp of a of an of a kind of economic wow. downturn yeah. like we haven't seen, and yeah. I can know. I mean, I, I'm just kind of projecting from my own experience earlier in my life uh, when I didn't have a lot of money and my family didn't have a lot of money. I think if we would have gone to the store and the price differential would have been something that was non-zero, I think mm -hmm. we would have said. No, we've just got to get what we can get. So I hope that those are embedded and that people continue to do it. And But we'll have to see. I, and Matt, I think they can do it for non-zero and increase their market share. Because I've seen that happen as well with companies. I saw one company take market share away. They got a contract in Europe from McDonald's for their coffee because it was sustainable. And they took market share away. I saw Lipton take market share away from Tetley's, and those are both commodity-priced products based yeah. on the sustainability claims. So I actually think those smart com companies, as we head into, I agree with you, more challenges, should think about market share and loyalty as opposed to premium. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you said um, uh, allegedly, or I, I don't think you said allegedly, but the, the idea of the claims, the claim and environmental mm -hmm. claims. And of course, a big part of what makes this system run is some sort of independent verifier of the sustainability claims because of course you know the greenwashing problem where companies claim all kinds of stuff mm -hmm. um, and i know that rainforest alliance was one of the first and big movers in this area but i i just took a look while i was preparing to talk to you there's now hundreds of these things everywhere <laughs> and people will put you know slap it on their product and you, and and you have no idea of the provenance of of you know what did people have to do to get this mm -hmm. this thing and i guess it it raises the kind of bigger question that let's assume that you know on this b2c front we can have we can we can achieve this kind of consumer-led demand transformation of how we produce some, at least some of our products, right? We need some sort of verification procedure that's independent from the firm itself. But then you get to the problem of who verifies the verifier, right? Who certifies the certifier? And mm -hmm. that, I, I know you have experience with this because it's such a tricky problem. You know, even somebody as, as reputable as Rainforce Alliance had kind of controversy around this at some point. Sure. And I think everybody mm -hmm. does. So do you have a sense of how, how we get around that problem? Yeah. And, and first, I should say, just going back to our study, because we were doing it at such a scale, when we say sustainability marketed products, we are saying that purposefully as opposed to sustainable products, okay. because we, in looking at them, could not tell you whether or not they were actually sustainable. So we were more, more focused on whether consumers were perceiving them as such and whether there were claims there. That's okay. So just as a caveat, but to go yeah. to your question. Um, 
so there is a group called ISEAL, I-S-E-A-L Alliance, that is a coalition or network of all the independent certification systems from um, Rainforest Alliance to Fair Trade and others. And they work together uh, for stewardship council and so on. They work together to agree on kind of what is a common standard for things like complaints. If somebody um, has a problem with a certification or thinks there's cheating or something like that, um, with how you actually do stakeholder engagement around designing your standard, a whole set of sort of good practices. So you get accredited under that system. In addition, different certification systems have their own accreditation systems. So for Stewardship Council, which certifies paper and pulp, you know, paper and uh, wood yeah. products, they have an accreditor who goes in and reviews the certifiers and what they're doing. Um, None of that is foolproof. Uh, you know, as you spoke about Rainforest Alliance, so we worked with hundreds of thousands of small tea producers and tea estates, and we had problems that we did not pick up in our certification around sexual harassment of female workers, um, which was just horrible, you know, particularly for me running the, mm. the organization. Sure, <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and there's only, uh, you know, I, I think there were things that we could have done better and we did and we changed. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that when you're working at scale across these systems, there will always be these kind of problems. Um, so what you, what you, the way you need to approach it is, one, um, what you're aiming for is not perfection, but improvement. You're, you're aiming, sustainability is a path to ensure that you have in place the standards and the goals of where you're trying to get, that you have good reporting and oversight incentives to continue to build progress on that, um, and that you have a robust system for when you do have a problem, which you will have, that you don't get defensive and um, not address it and instead say, yes, sorry, we see this, here's what we're doing to address it so it won't happen again. Um, and, and, and I think as well, I would honestly say that consumers are a big part of the problem and they're encouraged in this by companies because if you shop only based on price, even if you're in a lower income, because I, and I will come back to that point that you made earlier, but if you, base, if you shop solely based on price, you force producers at a certain price point into doing things that are unsustainable. You force them into paying people um, you know, wages that are unacceptable. You force them into polluting because they can't pay to dispose of it properly, right? Um, I, you know, talked to the pig, you know, pork producer once who sort of does factory farming, just nasty way of farming. And he said, as long as Americans are, in, you know, want pork at this price point, yep. it is very difficult for me. I can't produce it with every, how, every pig getting to have their own backyard. It yep. just does, yep. the, the, the economics don't work. <laughs> so I think a big challenge for companies as well as for consumers, is to pull back from this commodity price war downward cycle that we've gotten ourselves into where everybody competes just on price and to reorient people's understanding about what is value. Price should always be part of it. But what is value? Value is durability and artisanship and sustainability and ethics as well as mm. price. And let's think about do I need, even if somebody in low income, you know, is making decisions about buying a couple of pairs of, you know, like H&M cheap clothing when they could actually be spending money on one nice thing, right? And, some, and making decisions about 
a bunch of cheap processed food where they could be making decisions about organic milk, right? So, I mean, all of us, myself included, make those kinds of decisions that I do think we need more education and engagement around. There was a, and I'll, I'll move on from this, but there was a really interesting study that somebody did once about, you know, this sort of belief that you have to buy all the really cheap, bad for you stuff in the supermarket in order to meet your budget as a, a low income family. And actually they found if you really loaded up in vegetables and a variety of other things, you actually could shop uh, at a very inexpensive price point without having to fill it all with the stuff that, you know, is cheap and not good for you and not sustainable. Okay, so I'm going to gently, I hope gently, push back a little bit on this because I think it's a really key point here. And I just I'm, I'm really want to know uh, what you think about a couple things. So first of all, um, it seems to me if we look across the globe, there are different levels of saliency in different cultures for consumer cultures. And as you said, you know, if we're relying on people making kind of enlightened choices about their their consumption patterns at saying, I want to choose something based on value versus on price. I think that there is a lot of places. I mean, you've traveled all around the world. I've traveled all around. The world. There's places where I go where it seems like that's not even on the dimension on which they're they're choosing. They want the cheapest pork that they can get, for example. Traditionally, it's been looked at that this is a function of education and wealth, right? But of course, these must play a role in this. So there must be some level of wealthiness where you can start to take into account other things. If you're starving, you probably don't care where the pig came from. However, if we just look at, say, the U.S. and the EU, so I'm lucky because I've lived a relatively long time in both places. And I can tell you they're both wealthy and educated, right? Relatively wealthy, relatively educated. And to me, at least as a as kind of an intuition, there seems to be big differences in the level of inherent concern about products, provenance, about types of production that went into the product, et cetera, et cetera. That can't really be explained by just the, the kind of income and the education. And if we rely on essentially enlightened consumers, don't we run into a problem where in some cultures that is much less salient than it needs to be to push the change? Well, I think it's a really good question. And, and I think there are differences country by country. When I was running Rainforest Alliance, the companies that we worked with were international and they would always want to introduce the sustainable product in certain companies and countries in Europe first, North America was second. But within Europe, uh, actually, there were, were a lot of differences. So the UK would be important. Um, the Netherlands would be important. Scandinavia would be important. But the Southern, um, Southern European countries, actually, US would become before those. So just to say that it's not monolithic within the EU either. Sure. Um, also, there's some really interesting work to being done by, done by BBMG, which is a consulting firm with Globescan that looks at sort of customer consumer attitudes globally. And they've identified what they call the aspirational consumer who wants to shop in line with their values. And they find very high percentages of aspirational consumers in places like India and Brazil. So in emerging economies, they're finding that there's a really significant interest and demand for those. And, and you know, there's a variety of different 
theories about that, but one might be that they see very up close and personal the environmental and social sure. challenges, yep. right? Yep. Um, the other thing that I would say is um, one of the things that we need to do um, to answer your question about is it just enlightened consumers? No. So this needs to be as made as easy as possible for the consumers. Companies need to lead, right? So companies need to make this, make this available for you before you even know that you want it. And so one of the things that I would talk to companies about Right, they would say, "Well, company, you know, uh, American consumers aren't asking me for a sustainable product." And I say to them, "Did consumers suddenly start asking you for a ruffled potato chip? Like, hmm. did, did you all of a sudden get thousands of letters saying that they wanted ruffled potato chips?" <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of these smooth potato chips. Yeah, did, what, you know, <laughs> did somebody suddenly say they wanted a garlic flavored, you know, something or other? No, you did. You decided that you know, there would be new opportunities for you to create a new market, so you went out and figured out how to do that. Why is sustainability different, right? Why don't you figure out how you're going to tap into what is increasingly clear that, and all of the studies around COVID are showing this, that, that um, and I'll talk about the American market right now, because you were saying, and you've been right, that some Americans have been less interested in this than, than many Europeans, that, um, that consumer interest in shopping aligned with their values is becoming even more heightened related to companies' behavior around COVID. And when you also see how companies are taking stances against the Trump administration, this also comes back to how consumers are paying attention to what the brands are doing. So I think that um, it's, all, it's incumbent on the companies to come up with more sustainable alternatives that don't cost 40% more, that they market well, right, as something exciting and fun, not like boring and like potentially lower quality, which has been some, this is another sort of hangover, I think, in America sure. from the 80s when we had a bunch of low quality cleaning products and food products that were marketed as sustainable, but that didn't work or didn't taste good. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, so you have that kind of still hangover from that. But I think now that's beginning to shift and they're becoming like Allbirds shoes are like yeah. so cool. Everybody wants them and they're 100% yeah. sustainable as an example. So I, I just, again, I, I'm, I'm just going to play the devil's advocate a little bit. Of course, so, that's so your you, job. Yeah, you know, you're, you're, yeah, <laughs> let's, let's go back. I, I love the potato chip example. So um, <laughs> the difference I would say is that it would be like coming to a company and saying, look, you know, these flat potato chips, these, these flat ones, these smooth ones, they're really messing stuff up. They're killing people. They're killing the planet. They're causing warming. And you just can't make them anymore. So here, here's the, I mean, it's a, it's a bigger question. So let me try to set it up because I think this is, to me, a real kind of, maybe the core of the question. It seems we, we do all, we talk about free markets, right? And so far you've been talking about kind of free market behavior of firms within a free market. But of course, there's no such thing as a free market. State, state actions needed in order to create any conditions for any market. And we do all kinds of things to constrain practices within a so-called free market. At a minimum, there has to be somebody like to enforce contracts or, you know, you, you have to have some police that make sure that some, some force that makes sure that people just don't come in and take what they want. Um, and then sometimes we add public safety considerations. So we say to companies that they can't sell stuff to us that's going to kill us, right? They can't sell stuff that's poison unless maybe it's tobacco, but that's a whole nother show, right? Then, then we might address... Sometimes we address externality problems. We say to companies, look, you can't make this product and pump pure poison into our water and kill everybody downstream. 
You know, that's just not, not acceptable, even if you have a consumer for the products. And the, or they can't, they can't compete in the market. So we decide companies, for example, on the other sustainability, they can't grossly exploit the workforce. So we have minimum wage and health and safety regulations, et cetera. All these are kind of restrictions in the free market in order to direct, to kind of address, it seems to me, collective action problems, externalities, reflections on what we think is morally reprehensible, et cetera. But it seems like we make a kind of shift here and it, and it sometimes makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. When we talk about ESG issues, we sometimes say, okay, well, we have to show firms that it's in their own self-interest to behave in this way. We aren't going to regulate it. We're going to, we're going to, we have to convince these giants of our markets to do what's good for them. And we don't really rely on the same sort of convincing strategy for other things. We don't say, companies, you know, you really can't use slave labor. We say, no, slave labor is morally reprehensible and we, it, is, it is against the law. It doesn't matter whether you have a, a kind of clients for it. We don't say convince companies that it's in their enlightened self-interest not to sell food uh, that's poisonous by saying, look, once it gets out that your, your food's poisonous, nobody will want to buy it. We just say, no, we, you can't do that. It, it is regulated. So the state makes these kind of things. The problem is if we say to consumers, we're going to let you drive this. And to the extent we can only have these sustainable products, if you show us that you have this capacity to want them, doesn't that get us into trouble? Why, why do we make such a shift? So I... I think that the government does need to take a much broader role, more like, and this is also never difference between the EU and the United States. I gave you that example about the automotive sector before. And I said in, in Europe, automotive companies are responsible for the end of life disposal of the cars there. They're not in the United States. So in, in the EU, this company was reusing 2.5% of their product and um, recycling 10% of it and making $100 million. They're not doing it in the United States because they're not required to. Mm. Um, so if you required that, then a whole bis a business would develop because in, the, in Europe, they actually have sub-businesses that will work with you on your reuse and your recycling. They've all been set up around that whole system. That's right, yeah. Right? So, um, so I think... Uh, we do need for certain issues, we absolutely need government to step in and regulate. I mean, another other examples would be, you know, imports of illegal timber, right, which undercut sustainable timber. So there's, there's, and I, you used examples where we have laws, but that actually aren't enforced, like slave law, labor is not enforced, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. there's plenty of stuff coming into Europe, as well as the United States sure. made from slave labor that nobody's paying attention to. So just as a caveat, government doesn't always, Fair doesn't point. always mean Fair we point. fix things. Yeah. Um, but Yes, we need a much larger role. And, and particularly when we look at climate change, we look at issues like diversity and inclusion and in COVID, you know, you need government intervention to make the large shifts that we need. Um, and we need, uh, we need that. But I also think we need business to be educated around the business benefits of this because otherwise, 
they like don't pay attention to the child labor law, right? I mean, right. Uh, you know, so we, uh, or they don't themselves push for more support for this. They'll continue to push for subsidies or things that are bad, you know, that undercut the other work. Yeah, they'll lobby so, against the rules, except They do, yeah. which is sort of pretty consistent. So I, I think that we need both happening. We need a much more rigorous government approach, but we also need a more education and enlightened management approach by companies where they actually see that sustainability is good management and they invest in it because it makes sense for them financially. And the government can help it make even more sense by regulating and also providing incentives, right? That well, and, he, the, and you know, the interesting thing is, is I think it's particularly important that piece when you don't have, when you have B2B businesses mm -hmm. who don't have, who aren't consumer facing and so don't necessarily have the same uh, consumer choice driving their behavior. Right. And I really like the work you guys are doing on the whole supply chain. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it's a tricky kind of situation. Let me give you an example. Um, I was doing some work with a very large chemical company who is pure B2B business. So it provides the raw materials that go to another business that, that builds something that goes to another business that then supplies the automotive industry. The, you know, we're, we're talking very basic business. So this was in the US, this is in the Northeast. And at the time, the US government had this thing where you, um, there was a regulatory uh, uh, obligation to use the best proven technology for the scrubbers of the stacks that, of the pollution, air pollution that came out. And the EPA uh, worked with this company because the whole thing is best proven technology was the law. So it had to be tested before it became obligatory for the rest of the firms to have it. So what this firm did is they worked with the EPA to put in new technology so they could establish the baseline because they, they figured, look, we can get a nice, we, we're behaving reasonably and responsibly. As soon as everybody else has the same technology, we won't be in a competitive disadvantage and everything will be fine. We can be a first mover on this. They put it all in, spent a lot of CapEx in it. The administration in the US changed. And they came to the company and said, we aren't going to be enforcing the best enforce, best proven technology in this field anymore. So now you're the firm. You have this already. It's ready to switch on. And if they switch it on, their cost will go up. The cost of production goes up a bit. Um, and it's a commoditized market. So the cost is, you know, they have to drive the cost down and they have to be able to compete equally with other people. If they turn it down, they'll be cleaner. If they turn it down, they'll be suddenly economically disadvantaged. So it just sits there, turned off, on the outside of their machines. And this is this idea that if, if we just, they, this is a company that I think has a real, truly embedded sustainability. They're really interested in it. They were willing to be the first movers. They really, but they're not willing to kill their business because they're at a dis competitive disadvantage. Because it kind of goes back to your idea of the, the pig farmer. Look, you know, when I have consumers, but these consumers are down the, the supply chain. So I'm just, it's like an example of we can't rely just on businesses to do the right thing because it's not always aligned. I don't know, but what do you yeah, think? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And, and this is also the, your example of the government changing is why in my career, I have worked around government. 
because exactly, yeah. I have found it to not be helpful eight times out of 10, even though to actually move forward in a really big way, you need it. So if I were that company or I advised in that company, what I would do is I would, if, if they have a really significant impact case, so I would say, show, show, write down and demonstrate the impact case in terms of carbon reduction or chemical reduction, whatever the reductions are, and sort of per time, how would that, what that would mean for these companies. Try, and you can go one of two ways. One is I might try to build a constituency of, not, of NGOs, environmental and non, nonprofit organizations who thought this was a good thing and who could help put pressure on those companies that were the end users uh, to begin to source a more sustainable um, uh, approach. But also I would look at my, at my clients because a number of them have made commitments, public commitments about reducing their emissions, their water, their et cetera. And I would go to them, I, I, this is what I probably do, I would go to them first and say, hey, you've made these commitments, here's a solution for you. It's going to cost this much more. And here, let me be transparent and show you why it costs me more. Um, you know, what can we do to, to move this forward to help you meet your commitments? And if all of them said, hey, we're not going to do that because it's not going to meet our commitments, I would actually then go make common cause with the NGOs. <laughs> so okay. that's, that's my two cents on it. To, so exert some pressure there. And if, yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and I think that's, it's interesting because I think that that kind of, that kind of, that kind of pressure can work in the right mm -hmm. environments. And so mm -hmm. sometimes I think the problem is, of course, a lot of these production facilities are not in the US or the EU or other places. Mm -hmm. And, and the kind of democratic pressure that you're, you're saying is, is mm -hmm. much more difficult. True. Um, listen, I, I just wonder, given that, you know, it's been interesting to me from afar to watch California's System. I'm going to make a little shift here. Sorry, it's a little bit of a, a shift in topic. But uh, to watch California be able to drive, say, emission standards in the U.S. by because their market is so big, it just isn't, mm -hmm. isn't worth different automotive companies making different products for different markets. Do you think under a, let's say, a different U.S. president, let's say, but do you think it could possibly be that one of the things that would could come out of COVID, if you're right about people's being more interested in, in these topics. Could the EU and the US come up with some environmental ethical codes? Because their market is so big, it wouldn't be worth it for for other companies. Could could they could they be a kind of California driving global economy, do you think? Yes, and, and in effect the EU has actually already played that role to a certain extent because some companies will that are big international companies um, will go with what the Europeans want. Um, and now we're going to, we're seeing, I, I love what they're coming out with in terms of their recovery plan and really doubling down on green infrastructure and resilient infrastructure and climate change issues and so on um, in the EU. And it, when you look at um, uh, Joe Biden's plan, he also is, is very much focused on these sets of issues. Um, so if he is indeed the next president, I think hope that that will be a priority. Um, I think that, that coming together as those two markets, along with Canada, who also has got you know a lot going on there in this um, in this arena, could be really really interesting. Absolutely, I also think that you know you could, under a different president in Brazil, um, you know I, I think I think the BRIC countries are and China China has been they have major problems, but they also have been trying to make some real progress in certain areas. I think if 
if you could create some other coalitions that could be very interesting as well. So I, I think there's, there's big opportunity here because society will need these solutions. It, it's not going to be a maybe, it's going to be a must have, right? So if it's a must have, that's the role for business and government will be forced to step in and make, regulations that require things, make incentives that require things, and banding together will enable them to do it in a much more business-friendly way. So it will actually be business's best interest to encourage that kind of engagement. So you're, are, you, are you optimistic about that? Uh, <laughs> um, I try to be, like you were saying earlier, I try to be a glass half full kind of person. Hmm. Because otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, I do think that with climate change, it's rapidly getting out of our control. And as you pointed out with coronavirus, we, we are not seeing the kind of state level or global leadership that we need. So I very much do worry about how capable our political leaders are of leading us through this next phase of just complete chaos that is going to happen. Um, that said, what's interesting and why I go back to business is that citizens actually see that. And at one level, I think that's why they're putting so much pressure on business is that if you have businesses whose, whose annual revenue are, is bigger than G- GDP of many countries, you know, they if they band together, they actually control far more resources than all the world's governments. They can actually force things to happen. As long, you know, and again, you want to keep them honest, so you need to have government and civil society involved. You don't want a cartel of companies or, you know, organizing the world. But, but thinking about how, how you could actually harness all that capital that's currently being invested in problematic things, you know, I, I think is, is fascinating and, you know, if government doesn't step up to the challenge. I guess that's my point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I will be half, I will look at the glass half full because I, I think that there's, with the kind of work that you guys are doing on the monetization, I think that's really important piece. Um, but I, I have a real worry about when things get really tough and I think they're about to get really tough. Can we, does that destruction bring us back to kind of does it strip away all the non-price elements mm-hmm. or does it make us say, look, this house is destroyed. Let's rebuild it and let's rebuild it in a, in a different way. And I really hope it's the second thing, but uh, we'll have to see. And I think yeah. part of that, you know, we didn't really get to this and we're, we're running out of time, but I think part of that's going to be investors appetite mm-hmm. uh, for responsible, so, so-called, you know, in, in inverted parentheses, responsible investment vehicles, mm-hmm. because I think, now, so many large funds have so much power, particularly when you look at start to look at um, uh, retirement funds, uh, state funds, uh, pension funds, et cetera, et cetera. They can exert a lot of pressure. And I, I think that that's another potential pressure point that can work outside of regulatory regimes. Um, and if it works in conjunction with them, even better. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, but we're we're coming to a close, and you've been so generous with your time. I don't I don't want to go over what what you've agreed to do, and I could talk all night about this stuff. It's really interesting. But um, I wanted to just ask you as kind of a last question, 
Is there something you read in the last year that you really think others should read? And, and, or, or have you seen a TV show or something like this? And when I say should read or should watch, I don't necessarily mean, you know, kind of in a way that will make them better people or just, just give us something to occupy our time uh, during, uh, during lockdown, hopefully the end of lockdown. Well, um, I was rereading, so it had been a while, um, a book that's from years ago, but I, I think it's so useful to, for today, which is a book by Donella Meadows, um, which is a, it's called a, a Primer on Systems Thinking. I think it's the, it's the exact title, but it's something along those lines. And she was an MIT engineer who... Um, you know, thought in systems, but found that the kind of traditional engineering way of thinking about systems was really doing a disservice to what was really happening. And when you look at what she talks about in terms of how systems work, one of the things she talks about is information and how systems have to have transparent information. <laughs> and real information and you look at and you look at how she talks about systems and information and you look at what's happening in terms of fake news as Trump likes to call it but but basically basically social media and the distortion of facts and a lot and the loss of newspapers you know sort of credible information sources and you can see how that's leading to systems breakdown right hmm. um, and so she 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 she's really fascinating to read from just a context of what's wrong with all of our What's wrong with our world right now? And part of it is a lack of systems thinking. And, and what is really interesting about how you can apply sustainability in your personal life, to your thinking about life, or to corporates, is how, how do you begin to think in systems? Because systems are complicated, mm. right? You know, um, And her way of thinking about it is just so beautiful. Um, it, it's just it's a fascinating read, even if you don't do anything with it. So I, 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 that would be my recommendation. Fantastic. Well, we'll, we'll definitely put that up on the description of the, of the podcast so people can, can check it out. I, I, I just finished a, a novel. I don't know if you know this novel Overstory. Do you know this? By no. It's a beautifully written novel that revolves around trees. Oh, nice. Oh, so, I'll have to look for it. So, yeah, it's, uh, it won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature. I just checked it out, mm. and I must say I, I, I found it uh, enchanting and really moving, and I thought that uh, that would be my recommendation, particularly for somebody like yourself who has spent so long and so much of her professional life and, and personal life working to preserve uh, some of the world's uh, most beautiful places. So I've super enjoyed our discussion. Like I said, I could go on and on about this stuff. I hope you found it uh, interesting as well. And uh, I want to just thank you very much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for taking the time and, and uh, look forward to listening to your next podcast with your next guest. You've been listening to Triumph Connects, a podcast for the Triumph community. I'm Matt Mulford, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to keep an eye out for the announcement of the next episode of Triumph Connects. Until then, I wish you all the very best.